Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello. Nice to be with you again to talk about the book of Jeremiah. Right. We're doing Jeremiah this week. So with our key questions here, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? Um, Jeremiah is full of those. But uh, what, what's what's the context here? Who's Jeremiah and you know, I, why is he I'm writing glad you, you thought that because I see Jeremiah as such a sad prophet. I don't know if you've ever seen the paintings of Michelangelo's from the Sistine Chapel, but he has a whole bunch of the prophets. And Jeremiah is his saddest looking prophet. He is downcast. He's looking down at the ground. His hands are covering his face. And and then um you read the te- the text and you think Michelangelo knew his prophets. You know, it is just <laughs> such a tragic call because his call is to testify of the fall of his nation. But of course, there's always that glimmer of hope as he refers to the hope of the of the return, the restoration and things. But as far as historical context goes, um, Jeremiah prophesied to four kings. Now, Isaiah also was four or five kings, but they listened to him. And unfortunately, these kings do not listen to Jeremiah. He's he's overlapping with the very end of the historical books. So Second Kings, last two chapters, Second Chronicles, last two chapters. And he overlaps with these um, Josiah. Do you remember? He was that really, really young king. He was eight years old and he had all the reforms. He, he The priests sort of were running the show and they said, let's clean out the temple. Let's kill all the, let's tear down all the false idol worships. And let's, they find the book of the law. They read it. They hold this enormous Passover. That's Josiah. And um, Jeremiah is called during Josiah's reign. And Josiah, you know, reigned for 18 years, but it, it says right here in, in um, Jeremiah 1.1, that he's um, in this, you know, Josiah then is 21 years old when he's called. So it's a little bit later. I think it corresponds to the Reformation. And, you know, in America, we refer to the first and second great awakening when there is this enthusiasm about religious topics. I think that's when Jeremiah was called. And I think that's when Lehi began his ministry as well in the Book of Mormon in Jerusalem during this exuberance and interest in religion. And the Lord wanted to say, okay, I'm glad there's an interest, but you've got to do it within my bounds. And he's calling these great prophets to say, you're you're not doing it quite right. It's still idolatry unless you're doing it my way. And that's that's the tragedy. The second king um, was, well, actually, it's um, three of Josiah's sons and one grandson. So we have Jehoaz, who served for three months, Jehoiakim, who served for 11 years, and then his son, Jehonikah, for three months, and then Zedekiah for nine years. And we know Jeremiah served after Zedekiah was taken captive, but um, the entire time, Jeremiah never goes to Babylon. He is always in Jerusalem. He's taken captive briefly in Egypt in, in later on in his book, but he comes back to Jerusalem and he he basically stays there. Um, so he, even though he's a contemporary of Ezekiel and Daniel, they're both in Babylon. So he's not, he's not um, within earshot of those. But it is interesting to see the parallels between the prophets that share the same time because Obadiah um, and Lehi and Ezekiel and Daniel and Nahum and Habakkuk, they they have a lot of, even Zephaniah, they have a lot of similarities and they're all at this time, the Lord's just saturating uh, the messages of repent now or else. And then finally it gets too late and he says, sorry, it, it's too late. 
But that's a huge theme in the book. I think, though, the main theme for me that's repeated the most times, I don't know if what you found, it's eight different verses repeat that the Lord wants to root out, pull down, destroy, as if he's talking about an old tree or something, you know, and then it says he wants to build up and to plant anew. And I see this image of a prophet saying, there is so much bad here. We're going to tear out all the old and take it down to the studs if you were building a house, you know, take it down to the bare bones and then um, start fresh. Let's put a new plant in, new soil. And it's just powerful. Um, Many people divide the book of Jeremiah into five sections and then a small little appendix at the end. And just like in most Hebraic um, messages, the center is the most important, just as as if it were a chiastic situation, which I think, generally speaking, Jeremiah is. But that center section, I love, chapters 30 to 33, is this promise of hope. And that's when Jeremiah prophesies the return after 70 years of exile. That's when he prophesies about the Davidic Messiah. Um, and I think it's a lot of second coming. There's not too much first coming. But we have a couple of verses in Jeremiah that are used in the New Testament to say, look at, look at, even our great prophet Jeremiah spoke to us. But in these, if we take the five sections, the first 24 chapters, God accuses Israel and warns Israel of the future destruction by Babylon. And unfortunately, in the next few chapters, uh, 26 to 29, Israel rejects Jeremiah's message, um, and Babylon then sieges Jerusalem. Then we've got that center portion on the hope of the return and the Messiah. And then following that, um, just opposite the Israel's rejection, we have the Babylonian siege and the destruction of Jerusalem, and um, that's when Jeremiah is kidnapped and taken down to Egypt. And even though he said, don't go to Egypt, that's one of the things he prophesied, so it's pretty ironic that he gets taken there. And then the last portion, 46 to 51, God accuses the foreign nations, and he says they will also be destroyed at Babylon. And then we have this tiny little appendix where it's sort of a summary, but Israel's destruction and and, uh, exile is is repeated. But um, just taking an overview, I'm glad to see that Jeremiah is not just prophesying against Jerusalem. His call is to the nations as well. And everyone that is wicked is getting his message. It reminded me of the fact that our bishops are not just serving the saints. They are to serve everyone in their geographic areas. Um, The other thing that's helpful, I think, about the book of Jeremiah is we're introduced to his scribe, and he says how he's writing it. You know, Barak says, "This I'm going to compile the poems and the sermons as well as these prophecies. It's sort of like an anthology. Um, But the beginning... Well, why don't we talk about? Do you want to talk about the Book of Mormon before we jump into the text, or should we? Yeah, a little bit. Let's let's definitely cover that. And Nephi talk about Jeremiah. I mean, it's so exciting that obviously we we talked a lot about Isaiah and the Book of Mormon, but um, I'll just jump into First Nephi one. As you recall, they are starting the book in Jerusalem, verse four. There came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they may must repent, or the great city of Jerusalem must be destroyed, and it sounds like this is happening 20 years before the fact, if this is happening uh, during the reign of Josiah. Um, and it's not until chapter 5, after Jer- after Nephi, Sam, Laman, and Lemuel bring back the brass plates down to 
the tent of their father in the um, down by the Valley of Lemuel or Valley of Laman. And um, as Lehi is going through the brass plates, he's stunned to see that in this great record of their scriptures, chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, or read, a record of the Jews from the beginning even down to, and then it lists several people, the mouth of Jeremiah. So we think Jeremiah's book covers over 40 years. And the fact that it's written in the brass plates means that someone at the time of Jeremiah is scribing down his messages. So either his scribe, Barak, is making multiple copies, or I just think part of Josiah's reforms must have been taking modern scripture and adding it to the older text. It's pretty exciting. I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, given the context. I, I had the same impression when I was reviewing and, and rereading Jeremiah. It definitely had a lot of Book of Mormon oh, yeah. parallels. themes, parallels, and whenever we get over to and one, over. Let's yeah. talk about it. Yeah. Um, there's one other place where Jeremiah is mentioned in those first few chapters of First Nephi chapter 7, verse 14. Quote, the Spirit of the Lord seeth this soon to strive with them. For behold, they have rejected the prophets and Jeremiah they have cast into prison. Now, some anti-Mormon attacks um, have attacked the Book of Mormon on this and said, wait a minute, Lehi supposedly left at 600 BC and Zedekiah doesn't put Jeremiah into prison until after that. But a close reading of the text shows that Poor Jeremiah was arrested four times. You know, I, I felt like, oh, this is like Joseph Smith. He's arrested all the time. You know, he's put into several different prisons. You can't count Liberty Jail um, as the only um, incarceration of the prophet, you know, so or Carthage Jail as the only incarceration. There was also Liberty Jail. Um, and actually, Book of Mormon Central has a fabulous know-why on that. It's, it's know-why number 463 that discusses uh, the different imprisonments and how Jeremiah fits into the Book of Mormon time. So we don't need to spend more time on that, but I'd encourage anybody who wants to know to check that out. Anything else on the intro or the background that you'd like to know? I think he's, he's married. He's got a wife. He's living in Jerusalem. It says he lives in Benjamin, but he is a priest. So he's got this love for the temple and an interest in the temple. And I also think it just kills him to see the temple being used inappropriately. And it's being used for idolatry at times. And it just eats him up, I think. Yeah, I saw this, saw that too. I think there's a lot of things obviously parallel to the modern day, right? Oh, Paralleling yes. to the Book of Mormon, which of course is written and, for the and, modern and day. we are... Right before a destruction, before the second coming, right. and Jeremiah is right before destruction. You're right. Yeah, this is very parallel to our day. Very so, so I see book. a lot of stuff. He has this reputation as a, as you said, a very melancholy prophet. Yeah. Um, but for good reason, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, given given the state of the affairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this little town that he lives in, in the land of Benjamin. In, I'm just in um, Jeremiah one one. It's only a 45 minute walk from the BYU Jerusalem Center. So it's just north of Jerusalem. It's not too far. So as a priest, it was close enough for them to come down whenever they were on temple duty. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of exciting that we actually have a location. We know where it was. We certainly didn't know where the land of Uz was with poor Job, but this one we're a little more familiar with. I should probably give you the the exact dates, at least biblical dates. Jeremiah says in chapter 1, verse 4, 
that he's called during King Josiah's 13th year. So King Josiah is now 21. And that year, according to biblical historians, is 648 B.C. So that's why I said I think he's overlapping with Lehi's life because uh, Lehi leaves in 600, but he's already been the prophet. He's already got adult or kids who are old enough to get married, um, right. at least four sons who are old enough to be married, but he's young enough to still continue to having more children. Um, but one of my favorite verses, which is quoted probably more than any other verse in Jeremiah, is chapter 1, verse 5, and it's this pre-mortal call, this yeah. beautiful, I just love this knowledge that our Savior, our Redeemer, our Creator, quote, formed thee in the belly, and I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I, I love this part that he was set apart ahead of time. You know, he was appointed to be a prophet. This is, where else do we see the preexistence? Well, we talked about it in the book of Job. Um, and this, this is Latter one of the key Saints, scriptures oh, that we use to, in the so modern as Latter-day Saints, we can then go to the Pearl of Great Price, the books of Abraham and Moses, Abraham especially. But I feel um, even though other faith traditions don't hold it theologically, I think individuals may not all subscribe to the fact that they were nothing until their birth and that they will be nothing afterward. I think we could find uh, a poll that would believe that. But um, as the Lord is calling him and saying, I've known you for a long time and I'm choosing you, you know, he claims like most prophets claim, oh, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. Right. <laughs> it's a very familiar vein here, <laughs> yeah, right? I, I've got a different translation here. This is the um, ESV, the English Standard Version. Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Now, King James calls him a child, but, um, you know, they, I, I appreciate the fact that he's a youth, but we see so many young prophets. I, I read some commentaries that said he's probably in his teens when he's first called. And I thought, oh, what a good age to call a prophet. You know, they're malleable, they're meek, and yet their hearts are soft. They have faith still. They can be... Um, the Lord can use them. And that's exactly what the Lord responds back in verse seven. Say not, I am a child for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee and whatsoever I command thee shalt thou speak. And it's a familiar refrain in verse eight, right? Be not afraid. Yes. Isn't that a similar refrain? In fact, um, if an angel comes in the New Testament and doesn't say that, you don't think it's an angel. I mean, think of the shepherds, angel Gabriel, to Mary and um, Zacharias. Yeah. And then the Lord promises that he's going to put his words in his mouth. In verse 9, I feel like that's all of our goals. Whenever our responsibility as a missionary or giving a, a yeah. teacher or uh, giving a talk, you know, we just want the Lord's words. Actually, I think we should probably pray night and day that always we can have the Lord's words in our mouth. You know, whatever our lots of likes are that we can speak with love and compassion and honesty and truth. We can stand up for truth. But here comes in verse 10, that theme that I said, that I thought was, uh, well, it's mentioned in chapter 18 and 24 and 29, and then twice in chapter 31, twice in chapter 42. I don't know if you found more than that. That's They're, they're slightly different, but do you want to read verse 10? Have you yeah. got that? 
So it's the King James Version. Great. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. So I have this, this imagery. I, I was lucky enough to serve in an area that had actually lots of olive orchards okay. and almond orchards and... Um, I guess in olives, they call them vineyards, even though I'm not sure where that comes from. <laughs> no, but uh, but uh, every season, I see this visual where they go through and clear, and and this is what they do. They root out and pull down and destroy and then build and plant. Um, and so image. I had this image, yeah. I love liking that unto Jesus's Last Supper, John chapter 16, I believe it is. I am the vine, you are the branches. I want to revisit this fundamental doctrine early, which you know is is we use to teach the gospel about the uh, uh, pre-existence, because there's a lot of confusion, especially in Joseph Smith's time around ordination versus oh, pre-existence. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. So he's called us a prophet because the Lord knew him, but not because the Lord was controlling him. Yeah, that Calvinistic thought actually was first introduced by St. Augustine, that God is in complete control. God has so much power that he is in complete control. And they just missed that doctrine of agency that the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 2, for example, um, brings out so carefully saying, no, 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 no. God is bound by laws, and the reason why he's God is because he obeys all the laws, and so all truth um, is in his control. But, oh, I'm, I'm glad you put that out. This is very different. He's, he's calling him, and he is accepting the call. Although a couple times later on, I don't know if you remember, Jeremiah has to— um, says, this is too hard. You've, you've just made this too hard for me. And he says, yeah. But right from the beginning, he says, no one's going to listen to you, but, but it doesn't matter. You're not working for them. You work for me. Just obey. You'll be okay. But I need you to say it anyway. Yeah, that's a tough calling. Oh, it was. I'm going to give you words, and they're going to not like you for it, yeah. but they're my words. Yeah. Right? That... And in fact, um, look at verse 19. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Now, this theme of these righteous saints being cared for by God does not mean that they aren't going to have to suffer and that their job is hard. Being a servant for God is serving up, is, is signing up for um, a lot of refinement and challenges, but the blessings are worth it. I, I have never once felt that my sacrifices to build the kingdom were a sacrifice. They've all been... Um, amply, amply confident. I feel the same way. Yeah. You know, the, 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 he's letting them, it's like, this is going to be hard, but you're going to be with me and that, that's just worth yeah, and anything. I'll deliver you. Don't worry. Nothing's going to, I'll tell you right now, the end from the beginning. You know, you've got a hard lot, but don't worry. You're going to come out conquer. Yeah. And then chapter two, um, my people have committed these evils and he begins elaborating. He calls them hewn out cisterns, you know, the great big places to store water since they only get rainfall for three or four months a year. And so they store all their water in these great big cisterns. But the cisterns have a whole, you know, they're, they're good for nothing. The, the cisterns aren't working. And then in verse 20 of chapter two, thou wanderest playing the harlot. And then skip down to 25. I have loved your you, meaning Israel, but or the Judah, Judah, you have loved strangers, and after them I will go. 
So Judah, um, this imagery of adultery is idolatry, has been in Isaiah, and it will be again in Hosea. But I feel like Jeremiah repeats it over and over and over. And I think because the marriage covenant is so sacred, so important, so fundamental to society, that by the Lord saying, you're committing adultery against me, it sort of gives a shock value. And I see this as a wake-up call. I want you to realize that what you are doing is you are playing the harlot. And look at verse 35 in chapter 2. I haven't sinned. You know, and that's part of the problem. They don't realize right. they're, they're, they're sinning. The Lord's so mad at him in chapter 3, he calls him backsliding. You know, I just see this great big heifer sliding down a hill or something, you know. But they've committed all sorts of sins. But um, it, he says, I don't remember which chapter it was, but for six, ever since you left Egypt, you've been, you haven't been loyal to me. I, I expected you when I married you, when I gave you a covenant, when I promised I'd take care of you, that you would be loyal to me. But you haven't. You leave me all the time. We'll we'll hit this, I'm sure, far more often than chapter two. But I just wanted to point it out that this Old Testament pattern of God. And not only is it idolatry is adultery, but God's marriage to Zion or God's marriage to Jerusalem plays all the way through to the book of Revelation where John is talking about the millennium and the bridegroom is waiting for the bride and then the children are Israel. The offspring are Israel. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm seeing much stronger parallels with the New Testament and Christ and the imagery that these, oh, they're borrowing from these. Ezekiel. Well, you know, we're, well, in, but Jeremiah and, 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 these, and these prophets, okay. you know, obviously started with, with I think Isaiah where it becomes very, very strong, mm -hmm. clearly, mm -hmm. but this comes in Isaiah. Revisiting verse 13, um, you know, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then our right? savior builds on that with the right. woman at the well in John chapter four. And, and I think they're saying cisterns here in verse 13, but I'm also thinking of, you know, old wine and, you in know. new bottles. Yeah, right, right. And, um, or new wine and old bottles, excuse, excuse me. Yeah, no. But say, you know, same same idea. So he's borrowing from this. So as I was just reread this, this feels familiar in mm -hmm. multiple places, mm -hmm. and it's all mm -hmm. linked to well, Christ and our Savior and, and the know. Book of Mormon. I just think Jeremiah is is easier to understand because we have that those two comparisons. But this is a long book, uh, fifty through fifty three chapters. So we've got to I've got to jump ahead a little bit. Here. I'm going to. Chapter 7, though, is one that I don't want to miss. Um, he's telling him to stand at the temple gate. So this is mm -hmm. figuratively the place of the covenant. And non-figuratively, he says it's the place where everyone's coming and going. I want you to be in a public place. And I want you to um, chant this out loud. And I love this translation. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It almost sounds like the cleansing of the temple here. And when we um, skip down to verse 8, he says, trust not in these lying words, you know, and I'm going to give you some official words. And he sort of repeats some of the Ten Commandments. But then in verse 11, I think you'll recognize this from our Savior. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. What's it sound like? Absolutely. I mean, almost word for word, right? You the know, cleansing you, of the temple. Yeah, exactly. From what the Savior has. You know, this brings back to, you know, when we did the overview of 
this idea of another great awakening, you know, uh, sort of the, the Lord shaking, calling multiple prophets, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And shaking Israel out of what we just read was they don't even realize that they're so far off, right? They think they're kind of fine. And let's define prophet. I guess we should have done that at the beginning here. When there's multiple prophets, um, the book of Revelation says a prophet is one who has the spirit of revelation, who's been called of God and can testify. So when we use the biblical definition of a prophet, then we remember back to Moses who said, would to God that all were prophets. Right. And so we're seeing people called of God, which if it were in our day and age, it could be a disciple who's had a witness and a call of the Lord or a missionary or, you know, anyone with a testimony, anyone who's willing to stand up and anyone who has learned the language of the Lord well enough to be able to repeat his words. However, these prophets really had a close ear to the Lord. I feel like it's like Nephi, you know, open vision, multiple open visions, multiple calls, but it's all to act as a warning to their people and to future generations and I think to us. I definitely feel that in the mouth of two or three witnesses Mm -hmm. throughout this, Mm -hmm. you know, not just obviously generationally within obviously Jeremiah and so on and his contemporaries, but across dispensations. It is helpful. We do see destructions at the end of each dispensation and you see the same patterns. Going back to chapter seven of Jeremiah, uh, he's still in this temple chapter, chapter seven, and he says, I want you to go back to Shiloh. Do you remember that Shiloh is where the tabernacle was actually longer than Solomon's temple? Right. It was. You know, it was in Shiloh for almost 400 years. And so just about the same time, I guess, as Solomon's temple. Um, but he wants you to go back there because here he is, a priest, and he said, I want to go back to the pure days where we had um, some temple worship that was done to me, not just ritual habits. And he continues on in verse 14, your repentance will amend your way. And then he talks about how it's a whole family event that they're all worshiping idols, the children, the mothers, the fathers, everyone does. Um, and it's just tragic. He, he, he looks back, this is a couple chapters later, um, in Jeremiah 11, 4, and he says, I even commanded your fathers in Egypt from that iron furnace saying, obey my voice and do them. You know, this is so different. Jeremiah's warnings are saying, repent, repent, repent. And I just am so grateful. We live in a day and age where we have a prophet who also said, we've got to repent. We've got to repent every day. But our community says, if you're feeling guilty, maybe there's something wrong with the law. You know, we have this moral moral bar that says, oh, it's okay. If we're going to love and accept someone, we have to um, go to the extreme of saying it's morally okay to break the law of chastity, which is not what the Lord would have said here in Jeremiah's day. Right. Well, going back to the last half of verse four. Uh, Which chapter? uh, Chapter 11. Okay. Yes. According to... um, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God. There seems to be a standard, and this is this is very common. But to to your point, you know, when you feel guilt, there's two things you can do. You can destroy the standard, 
and ignore it or and and or, or repent repent and align your Come behavior with the standard. And, and this is clearly thinking, we're going to talk about repentance. Um, I think in a couple of chapters, 18 talks a lot about repentance, but I don't want to miss the chapters between now and 18. Um, but those are the options. But 16 is, is so powerful. Um, I don't want to miss chapter 16. Starting in verse two, the Lord commanded Jeremiah, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou... Well, he's telling the people to tell the people, don't take a wife, don't get married, don't have children, um, because they're going to die grievous deaths. And in this place, yeah, you know, people... The the destruction is so close that now is not the time. You could have raised up your family earlier, but it, it is too close now. And in verse 13, Therefore I will cast you out of this land that you know not. But... By the time we're in chapter 16, verse 14, he talks about God will restore Israel. You know, he always is so encouraging. I feel like every time he gives a spanking he, or a verbal, a verbal um, punishment, he puts his arm around. God will restore you. I will, I will be here for you. It reminds me of the command that Joseph received in Liberty Jail, um, reproving when it's needed, be times meaning immediately, you know, reprove immediately when it's needed through the direction of the Holy Ghost, not in anything that would be inappropriate. And then show afterward an increase of love. And that's what I see the Lord doing here. He's our example right here. But did you see that verse about our missionaries? Chapter 16, verse 16, one of my favorite missionary chapters. Behold, I will send many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after that, I will send for many hunters, that they may hunt them. So were you in a mission where you gathered like a fisherman's net and you gathered in by the hundreds, or did you have to go one by one with your bow and arrow and hunt one at a time? It depends on the area. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, my mission was in Sacramento, and um, certain parts it was absolutely like fisher. Wow. And others were very much like... Hunters. Hunters, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's beautiful, and in, it's in the context of restoring truth that he gives these hunters and fishers. And I hope that each of us future missionaries, um, daily missionaries, can feel that the Lord is using us every day as we pray and ask that we can be used to share, love, and invite. Yeah. I, I love this image. I immediately think of Peter, right? Oh. And all the fishers. And then, of course, modern day, too. Same, same imagery, same references. And then chapter 16 ends, then, this is verse 21, they shall know that the Lord Jehovah is my name. That's in the Aramaic um, translation. They shall know that Lord Jehovah is my name. So we won't know that all these things are fulfilled until they're fulfilled. And he says that over and over again in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. They'll know it once they see the fulfillment. So that will bring them to, and I just hope they know that. Yeah, we're so lucky to see this hundreds of years after the yeah. fact. I'm like, yeah, this is this has happened. This right? has happened. This has happened. And then chapter 17 has this beautiful call for the Sabbath to be renewed. Stand up, you Gentiles. Um, I want everyone to hear you. I want you to be in the gate of the temple, and I want you to call Jeremiah about the Sabbath day. And he really, do you see this in um, verse 21? Bear no burden, or chapter 17, bear no burden on the Sabbath day. So what are our burdens? 
What does this mean for us now? Bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Neither do any work, but hallowed be the Sabbath. What are our burdens? Lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of things. For me, the Sabbath starts on Monday, and it's actually work hard. Work hard throughout the week. Um, because that that leaves space on the Sabbath. Yeah, if reflect. I have prepared well, you know, do you I work try really hard not to even do the internet things um, that are convenient. Um, oh, let me catch up on this. or Oh, because then that leads to sometimes, oh, maybe I need to, oh, let me just grab this here. It's just not worshipful. It's not focused on my God, um, at least for me. For me, I try very hard um, to focus on worshiping God. Anything that is a hallowed activity that I would do if the Savior were with me, I think is appropriate. I like that. I like that rule of thumb. And um, basically, does it bring the Spirit in my life? And we have a lot of guidelines around those mm -hmm. commandments. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, take, I think it's taking a break and stepping back. So, you know, internet habits are one thing. Those should be different. It Sabbath, should be different. Right? Our work is my work is often on the on the internet, and so I like to not use it on the Sabbath. I also feel like, um, just like I don't take my phone into the temple, I don't like taking my phone into a church building. You know, I just want to focus on my worship. Um, it, it's a good thing for all of us to just look at again and say, what more can we do? Since that is a sign of the God's people, it is a sign of what's going to prepare us for the covenant. It's. it's Impending destruction is because we haven't been keeping the Sabbath. I find that when I keep the Sabbath day, there's more reflection. There's better reflection on the previous week. And then my future week goes much better. Um, I love planning with, in the Sunday nights, my week, because I've had the spirit and I've had some reflection and some kind of correction. Yes. And then I plan my week and then the week goes better, right? You know, I also I feel like the when the Lord... Um, says having a day of rest, sometimes we think that means then pleasure or relaxation. But the day of rest, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, the word rest is entering into the presence of the Lord. So it's a day when we enter into the Lord's presence. It's not a, it, there's no problem with taking a nap. I didn't mean that. But the idea of going to the park or a game or whatever, you know, I just feel like let's, let's be cautious on what things are holy and you can call me a Pharisee, but I, I'm pretty big <laughs> on the Sabbath. And then chapters 18 through 19 and 21, whenever we get 19 at least, we have these wonderful symbols. He has to go down to the potter. And this is the repentance chapter. Um, and it's a great place to see how repentance is defined in the Bible. It's not just stopping the sin. You can stop the sin and never repent. You can suffer and never repent. I feel like Jeremiah does such a beautiful job in defining repentance as turning back to God. You have to return. And he just, as that clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. You know, crush it down. I want to smash you. I want to mold you. I want to pluck up and destroy that nation unless they're going to turn from the evil. Um, in fact, the Joseph Smith translation is right there in chapter 18, verse 7, withhold the evil. Uh, as he repeats again, pluck up, tear down, destroy, you know. Um, but I, I think that those two chapters do a beautiful job on describing what repentance is and how we can apply it better in our lives. And then comes um, the mocking and the persecutions from chapter 20, you know, Poor Jeremiah is put in stocks, 
at the Temple Mount by one of the temple folks. I always like reading these books of scripture with a map beside me. And then I have a chart, um, many of which I have on my videos. But anywhere on the internet, you can just pull down a chart of the kings and the location so that when they say somebody's name, you know, oh, okay, this is what it's talking about. It just puts it in context. And one of those people here is um, the head of the temple, a, a priest in the temple, and he is mad and puts him in stocks. And um, he has all these symbols, even his posture of um, is symbolic. And I see so many of the prophets at this time were mocked, like, like Lehi was as well. And I think it's because they were going through these reforms that they thought they were doing things right. And so they didn't want to hear the Lord's word. They wanted to do it their own way. Yeah. yeah. But he says in, in verse um, 11, Jeremiah is said, um, the Lord is with me um, and my persecutors shall stumble. And then continuing on in verse 12, the Lord is going to try the or test the righteous, depending on which translation you're wanting to use. So don't think because you're having trials um, that the Lord is mad at you. He just wants you to get better. Sometimes people have said, oh, the Lord, well, Jesus would just sit and be with you. But I don't see that in the scriptures. I see the Jesus constantly trying to make people better. The woman at the well, he stretches. The woman um, with Mary and Martha, he stretches. You know, I just feel like, no, he doesn't just sit with us. He's always teaching and leading. And in Jeremiah, he's always warning. And that's chapter 21, these prophecies um, to Zedekiah. You know, he is going to, and this impending destruction in 22. And then in 23, we get the beautiful idea of the prophecy against the pastors or the shepherds, the flocks, where he's going to raise up this righteous branch. Is that verse 5? I will verse, raise up a righteous branch. Yeah, verse 5 has the righteous branch. This is where I see a very clear prophecy of the Savior again, right? So verse 4, um, Jeremiah 23, And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall mm -hmm. fear no more, nor be dismayed. Um, and then verse 5, which you just mentioned, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, capital B, right? And a king shall reign and prosper, shall execute judgment and justice uh, in the earth. And then in the six, and whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Um, and that branch, remember in Hebrew, Nitzar, branch is the same root, some people think, for the town of Nazareth, Nitzar. And it's a branch that will be even more closely tied to our Savior, the, the Lord, our righteousness. Yeah. That's beautiful. Now, even going back to verse three, just to, to preface this, and I will gather a remnant of my flock out of the countries whether I have driven them. Oh, this is very much the Lehi. scattering and the gathering of the the entire theme of the Book of Mormon. And uh, then it I, takes us to Jacob five with the yeah, branches. That's right. So the imagery of the, of olive the olives and the, and and uh, going back to Jeremiah one, right, which mm -hmm. will build up and pull out and root, um, and and so on. And he has another vision in 24 with these baskets of two figs and he's told the meaning of the vision one fig's good to eat and the other's all rotten or something and he says those that are good to eat are those people who are taken to babylon they're going to go there so that they can uh, be tried and improved and i'm going to bring them back you know i want them to go to this testing ground because they have to learn this lesson i love verse six i will bring them again to this land 
and I will build up and not pull down. I will plant them and I will not pluck up. I guess I've read that a few times, haven't I? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a recurring theme. We get this terrible, the next few chapters, 26, with these false prophets. You know, they're gathering against Jeremiah at the temple. Jeremiah writes the letter in chapter 29 um, that describes how um, the Jews are going to be deported for the second time. He's prophesying. And he tells the Jews in Babylon in chapter 29, verse 5, build your houses, plant your gardens, because you're going to be there for a while. And then he says, 29.10, pray for peace, because you're going to be there for 70 years. So that's excited. And then the last, you know, this beautiful section 30 and 31 deal with this gathering, the restoration, and he refers to the watchmen or prophets and I see this title of watchman um, being so important, not only as a prophetic role, but anyone who has a testimony of Jesus Christ needs to raise the warning voice. And he asks us to do that in multiple chapters, but 31, I think, is a beautiful one. We'll talk about that more, I guess, next week in Ezekiel. But um, I don't want to um, end without touching a little bit on the, um, after this destruction in chapters 42 and 43, um, Jeremiah is taken to Egypt. Now, some people think he, he died there, but he gives these prophecies against all these other nations. And um, then in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and this new king um, brings Jehoiakim out of the prison and sits him at the king's table. And once again, we have hope. The the son of from the tribe of Judah is sitting now at the king's table. And we are probably going to have hope. And these 70 years are going to come to pass and they're going to return. So the, the book ends with a happy note, even from our poor Jeremiah, who has the hard lot of prophesying of the destruction of his own people. Yeah. This this verse that stood out as I kind of looked through Jeremiah 42 was whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of, our, of the Lord our God to whom we send thee that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And I love that. Jeremiah was obviously terrible circumstances that he was in, um, and the circ- but he called and he did it and he spoke the voice of his Lord that was in. He spoke truth. We yeah. need to raise, we need to be watchmen. Let us speak the voice of truth. If we want to find peace, we have to obey the Lord. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you.